0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Contributions for the tabernacle, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Then all the congregation of the people, of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the, con- the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen." all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goats' hair and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense all the men and women the people of israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, we played a little bit of ping-pong this morning, so we jumped through. Um, we're really kind of covering five chapters of the book of Exodus. Um, and if you're just joining us, what we've been doing over the last several months, I think since September, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and we're finally coming up on the tail end of our adventure through this, um, this, this biblical account of, of the, the Exodus. And, and really what we're doing is we're coming to the apex of the story. Right, typically, a storyline kind of goes up and then comes down towards the end, right? You watch a movie, the apex is towards the end, but not right at the end. Well, well, this is a story where the apex of the story happens right at the end, and next week is sort of the grand moment of the book of Exodus. But before we get there, um, next week, there, there's a lot of work that has to be done in, in sort of a physical sense. Um, what we've seen up to this point in the book of Exodus is that God has done a lot of heart work through his people. Man, I need to pray. Let me pray. Father, I'm excited to preach this morning. I'm excited, I'm excited for what you have revealed in, in your scripture. I'm excited that it is something that's just as helpful and beneficial and, and essential for our lives today as it was when you had it penned thousands of years ago. And so, Father, would you, would you anoint my mind and my vocal cords to speak of your good news for your people this morning? Father, would you tune our hearts to your word? Would you make us hungry and crave the only thing that will satisfy us? Would you present that to us this morning in your word? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just get so excited sometimes. Anyway, so we're coming to the apex, and God has done a lot of work, Um. In his people, he has done a lot of heart work in his people, um, and, and this has really been accomplished in a, encounters with God. We see how God had delivered his people from Egypt at the beginning of the story. We see how God has provided for his people as they're wandering through the wilderness. We see that God shows his glory and his splendor up on top of Mount Sinai. We see God... Um, sort of making a, not sort of, but really making a covenant with his people. And through all of these, these encounters, God has been showing his people what he's like. And, and in this, people's hearts are being changed. And, and one of the most, in fact, the most potent encounter that these people have with God is, is in last week's passage where God had reestablished the covenant that the people had broken just a few chapters before. See, back in Exodus 32, while Moses was up in Mount, at the top of Mount Sinai getting um, the Ten Commandments, which were engraved on stone, and getting the instructions for the tabernacle, the people are down at the camp, and they are wandering away from God. They feel like God has abandoned them, and so they, they take their, their jewelry, their rings, and their earrings, and they throw it in the fire, and they make Aaron, the, who, who's the man in charge, Moses' brother, sort of, craft this idol for them to worship, right? This is the golden calf that, that many of us might be familiar with. And so in this act, it, it's a tremendous sin against God, right? The, the one true God who actually delivered his people from Egypt, and not this calf, because that's, that's what they were saying, that this is the God who has delivered us from Egypt, and, and it was not. And so this was a tremendous sin against God. It was a breaking of the covenant, right? It was the breaking of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. And so it left God and his people in sort of a tumultuous state. Things were not good at that time. In fact, things were so bad that that God said, you know what? I cannot be with you for you are a stiff-necked people. Right, They had become what they were worshiping. They were worshiping this this idol, this golden calf, and just like that golden calf, they had become stiff-necked in their ways and rebellious toward God. And he said, I cannot go with you, for I will consume you. I'll destroy you. And so God, still being gracious, he says to them, you know what? I'll, I'll still give you the promised land that you desire, because that's really what their hope is, to be in this this new land, have this space that there's, that's their own. God says, I'll, I'll give you this space, but I can't go with you. And And surprisingly what happens is Israel says, God, if you don't go with us, then we don't want to go. See, they knew the thing, the one thing that made them distinct from every other people in the world is the fact that God, Yahweh, was with them. And so if God were to, to depart from them, they would just be like everyone else. And so this is a disastrous word to the people. And Moses petitions for God to stay with them, and he asks for God to show him his glory. And so God does that. He shows Moses his glory. He stays among his people, tucks Moses in the rock, and he passes before him. But this time it wasn't a spectacle. The first time that God revealed his glory in Exodus 19, there was thunder and lightning. There was earthquake, trumpets blasting. People were scared out of their minds, but this time was different. See, when God showed his glory this time to Moses, he tucked him away in a rock, kind of hit him. He passed before him and he spoke his name. He said, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God was showing his glory in his name to Moses. And after experiencing this, because this is, this is the kind of God that, that sinful, unfaithful, rebellious people have to have if they're going to be in a relationship with God. That God has to be slow to anger, gracious and merciful, faithful, full of steadfast love. And Moses goes down to the camp and he tells his people what God is like and they are floored. Right they're, They can't believe that this God would re establish this covenant with them. See, this was outlandish for God, in a sense, to think that he would actually make an effort to reconcile himself to his people. And in this reality, they're, they're faced with two things. One, that the people are far more sinful than they ever thought, right? They're far more fickle of heart. They're, they're more unfaithful than they thought that they were. But at the same time, they realize that God is far more loving that God is far more faithful than they had ever hoped. See, until you understand these two realities, you do not understand the gospel in your heart. See, those are the two things. To understand the gospel, you have to understand how sinful you are, but how loved simultaneously you are by God. See, and, and, and really, if you don't understand this, The remainder of this book, the remainder of Exodus, won't impress you at all. In fact, it might irritate you. Because today we are going to see what it looks like for people to respond to grace. We're going to see what it's like for people, when they have an encounter with God, for them to respond rightly. And that can be summed up in in one word. And it's a hard word. The word's obedience. Obedience. Now, obedience is is kind of a, you know, maybe it might rub us the wrong way. I think for a lot of us it might, especially people uh, who aren't engaged in the church. Obedience, specifically in regards to Christianity, just sounds like this this dutiful, I've got to white knuckle it, bear down and do it sort of mentality. See, it's a thing that we're required to do by force. It's sort of the means to an end. Right? We obey the speed limit in order to avoid a ticket. We obey our boss in order to be, avoid being reprimanded. We obey our parents in order to avoid discipline. But in relation to God, obedience isn't something that you have to muster up in order for him to like you or to, to look at you f- favorably. In relation to God, I don't have to obey in order to be accepted See, Scripture's view of obedience, it's not a means to an end, but a result of grace. See, I cannot preach chapters 35 through 39, which is just packed full of obedience language, without recalling the grace that the people of Israel have experienced in the previous 34 chapters up to this point. They have experienced grace upon grace upon grace. They've experienced grace in God's rescue from Egypt, grace in God giving them law, teaching them what it's like to live well. They've experienced grace in the covenant. They've experienced grace in, in God's answered prayer and re-covenant. Now, many of us have experienced the same sort of grace and praise God for that, right? We've experienced God's steadfast love, his his. his Unmerited favor towards us through Christ, right? Where we've been delivered from our sins. We've had answered prayers. We've had blessing upon blessing. We've experienced forgiveness and we are engaged in our new life in Christ. See, but this grace that we experience in the Christian life isn't meant to leave us unmoved. It's not meant to leave us unmoved because grace has an agenda. Grace. Has an agenda. It, 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 grace isn't just given for us to kind of stay in the state that we're in. Grace is given to us to move us, to stir us onto something beautiful. And 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 Paul, the apostle Paul, when he's writing to in the book of, of Romans, which is his most um, substantial discourse on God's grace to undeserving people, he bookends that uh, that 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 letter that he's written with this this language called the obedience of faith. In Romans 1.5, he says, Through Jesus, we have received grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So what, what Paul is saying here, that we've received grace, and it's meant, meant to compel us toward obedience. He's saying that grace produces a changed heart and changed living, which looks like obedience to God. This means that real obedience is only generated. You can only be truly obedient to God when you do so out of a heart that has experienced his grace. And so today, we are going to see this at play here in Exodus chapters 35 through 39. We're going to see how God's grace fuels the obedience of his people to contribute to and to construct the tabernacle. Now, this tabernacle that God has laying out, we, we talked about it in previous chapters in um, 25 through 20, 30, is where God initially tells Moses all these instructions about the tabernacle. And, and really, the purpose of the tabernacle is to show people that God is with them, that God has moved into their neighborhood, that he is among them. And so, in experiencing God's grace, they have, it has radically changed these people's heart, and now they are fueled toward obedience So that's where we're going today. If you want to open your Bibles, we'll start out in Exodus 35, and we will sort of make our way through there and then end up in chapter 39. And like I said, so so, sort of recapping here, last week we saw God reestablish the covenant with his unfaithful people. And so in light of this reestablished covenant, God's plans can move forward now. Before God was ready to pull out and leave his people, and now with the reestablished covenant, God is ready to continue on and moving into the neighborhood. And I think that it's so encouraging to know that our sinfulness, while it makes things difficult, cannot foil God's plans See, if God had planned to move in among his people, he was going to make a way for it to happen, regardless how sinful the people were. So this is just a picture of the unstoppable mission of God, that whatever God desires to do, he will bring it about. He will accomplish it. He will not just accomplish it in spite of sinners. He will accomplish it using sinners. Right? There's this old uh, um, Puritan saying that God uses crooked sticks to make make straight lines. That's so true that, that a crooked stick in God's hand is just as useful as a straight stick in his hand. So it's so encouraging to see that God's plans can move forward regardless of how sinful or how, how bad we, we might mess up. God is going to move his mission forward. And so we see God laying out his mission here in chapters 25 through 31, where he lays out his plan to create this dwelling place, this tabernacle among his people. That's, that's God's goal, right? That's, that's what this whole book is moving toward, God moving in, in next door. And so up on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses these very detailed blueprints to build this mobile home. Right? He tells them the dimensions, he tells them what sort of fabric, he tells them what sort of furniture he wants, he tells them uh, how, how big the courtyard should be, all of these things, very, very detailed. And, and if you remember when we went through that, it's just detail after detail after detail, very, very, very specific. And, and really, if we look at verses 35 through um, forty well, or 39, we'll see that, that a lot of these details are repeated again. And I'm going to save us the time this morning and not go verse by verse like I normally do through our passage, but, but I just want to point out the breadth, the, the, the quantity of time that Moses spends talking about the tabernacle. See, 10 chapters, if you total them all together, there are 10 chapters devoted to building the tabernacle. That's of the book of Exodus just gives details on how to build the tabernacle and how it was done. 25%. Now, if you compare that to the four verses that we'll see in chapter 40 of when God actually moves into the tabernacle... Right? There's, there's a big difference here. God's laying out very specific things that he wants done. And I, I think the reason why Moses is, de, communi- is devoting so much real estate in the book of Exodus to the building, the construction of the tabernacle, is because he's communicating very, something very important for us to understand about God. He's telling us that God cares about obedience. He's telling us that there's a right way to worship God. It can't just be any way. It's done God's way. He doesn't, if God didn't care so much about this piece, he would say, you know what, just throw together a tent for me. You know, any little thing will do. Just put it together, I'll come in. But God doesn't say that. He's very specific about what he wants, how he wants his tabernacle to look like. And so this tells us that God cares God cares about how we respond to him. And so he gives very specific instructions on what and how to build. And so Moses is going to commission his people to carry out, to execute these plans that God had given him. But before Moses commissions the people to, to, to begin the work, he gives his people a reminder of the fourth commandment. So let's start off here. Exodus 35, verse 1. Now Moses assembled all the congregation of the people. He brought them together and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. why, Why would Moses, right, if there's all kinds of work to be done here, Why would Moses start off with a reminder of the fourth commandment, right? To observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to honor God in doing so. And I think the reason for this is because as the Israelites sort of contribute, as they engage in this physical work, in this physical labor that's laid out before them, very likely will bring flashbacks to them about their time in Egypt, Right? where they were plagued with loads and loads of work, lots of things to do, specifically to Pharaoh's liking. And so Moses, to help remind his people that they're no longer in Egypt, he says, you guys, remember that there's a Sabbath day, that we're not serving Pharaoh anymore, we're serving Yahweh, the God who gives us rest, so different Last week I mentioned the, the, the contrasts that Moses makes throughout the story of Exodus. And one of the biggest contrasts when we contrast God from Pharaoh is the fact that God gives his people rest. Pharaoh says, keep working harder and harder. Do more with no straw. Build more bricks with less straw. Keep going, going. And God says, six days you work, certainly, but on the seventh day you rest. See, he's giving them a weekly reminder that they are no longer under Pharaoh, but they are under Yahweh. And this is a a God who deals graciously with them. He's merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And on this Sabbath day, yes, there is a physical rest where they, they refrain from doing work. But in an even deeper, truer sense, that this rest that God is offering them is a spiritual rest. This is a sort of rest that is identity affirming, that they no longer belong to Pharaoh, but now they belong to God. He's saying that you are my people and my people rest. See, if Israel needs this kind of reminder on a weekly basis, how much more do we we have a tendency in our culture where our identity becomes wrapped up in our work, right? If someone asks you to, to, to explain yourself, to share a little bit about yourself, one of the first things that you'll typically always share is what you do for a living. Our work can sort of slide in there as sort of this big identity piece for us. And So Christians, we need a, a weekly reminder that our identity is not in our work, and what we contribute, but our identity rests in Christ's finished work. Now, this is why Sunday mornings and even missional communities are so important for your discipleship. See, the most important part of your life is not that you are your own doing what you do. The most important part about your life is that you are not your own, but belong to Christ, that your identity is founded and established and rooted in Him. And it's in Christ that we're able to find a true rest. It's in Christ where we are finally uh, relieved of this constant internal drive to prove ourselves, to prove that we're worthy or valuable or to be respected. See, in Christ, we find that God looks at us favorably, that he looks at us with love and compassion And yes, there is a physical rest to our work that happens on a Sabbath day where we take the day off. We don't actually, you know, we're not trying to make a paycheck. We're trying to, but the spiritual rest that happens on the Sabbath is far more important. And as we rest in that, that spiritual piece of our rest, we are enabled to work our best right as we are sent back out to go into our work that we are actually able we are rested and refreshed to do excellent things as an expression of our worship to God you see the people who actually understand the gospel on a heart level we don't need to rest from our work we work from a rest there's an important distinction there the people who understand the gospel don't need to rest from work we work from our rest, that we know our identity is in Christ, that that is what makes us who we are, and that we can step into whatever God puts before us as our vocation. It's a key difference. See, to rest from our work means that the demands are always on you. You're trying to constantly prove yourself. But to work from rest is completely different. You're not trying to prove yourself because Christ has done that for you. And in that, you're able to try you're able to find true rest, a, a physical rest, an emotional rest, a spiritual rest. And in that rest, you are compelled to give your best, to be excellent in all that you do as a form of heartfelt worship. Now, heartfelt worship is what God wants from his people. He's not, not interested in this half-hearted uh, activities over and over again in the Old Testament, God condemns ritual and sacrifice that is void of the heart. Right? Where people are just going through the motions, they're doing the right thing, they're doing what God wants them to do, but their heart's not in it. We can be just as guilty of this. right? We do the right things. We, we go to MC because that's what we need to do. People are going to get after us if we don't go to MC. I got to open my Bible because then you know I'll get God off my back today. And go to mission night, right? Something I got to do is something I got, but my heart's not in it. It's easy to go through the motions with our heart not there, and the reason for this is because, like when we when we get to this point, it's because we have in a sense forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten the gospel and its implications on our life. See, when the gospel isn't central to our lives, we lose the motivation to do the good things that God has called us to do. Not only do we lose the motivation, but it's easy for us to slip back into performance mode. Right? That's the mentality. I've got to do this so people will see me this way. I've got to do this so I think God will change his view of me. It's this performance mode that we easily slip back into. When we find ourselves in this struggle, the answer isn't to stop doing the things, doing the good things that God has called us to do. Right? It's not, the answer is not to withdraw. What we need to do is remember the gospel and its implications. Right? I think of myself, right? Sometimes fatherhood gets to be a lot, right? I've got a three-year-old who seems to be fluent in disobedience, Um. And so there's always this constant pull, right, that I feel like I have a responsibility to step in and to, to lead my child, to teach him the right way, to discipline when appropriate. And so there are times where I feel so overwhelmed by this, right? I, I, my heart's not in, oh, i got I to sit down and have a conversation with him again. And so the answer to that is not to to remove myself from my fatherly responsibilities. My, my, my response to that is to, to remember the gospel, to remember how my heavenly father is compassionate and slow to anger with me, that he's willing and happy to instruct me in his ways and to remember what, what that looks like in, in my life and, and how that correspondence has happened and to, to have that fuel and to motivate my interaction with my son. See, that's what, when we find ourselves in that struggle, it's not to stop, but we need to be stirred. We need to take uh, ownership to put ourselves before the gospel and remember what God has done for us. See, and I think as we do that, I know it, as we are confronted by the gospel, as we see God's grace to us in the gospel, that stirs our hearts. It changes our outlook. See, seven times in our passage does Moses make note of the heart response of the people, right? In in, in chapters 35 through 39, there's a lot of doing that happens. People are using their hands. They're building. We see women weaving things together. We see men constructing pieces of the tabernacle. But the thing that Moses wants to draw us to first off is their heart response, that they have been stirred deep within their heart by God's grace. These people are full of affections. They are stirred. They are willing. They are moved to worship because of God's grace to them. So one of the things, one of the big things that this passage shows us is that true worship takes form of joyful obedience. See, Whatever you love with your heart, you will obey from your heart. Heart-motivated obedience, this is not the rigid sort of white knuckle, bear down bear-down-and-do-it, but heart-motivated obedience will naturally flow out of loving something. We're going to see how Israel's love for God is expressed by keeping these commands, specifically God's commands in building this tabernacle. So in verses 4 through 10, Moses is speaking to the people. He's giving them the commands that God has given them previously, In regards to the tabernacle. Take a look. Verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskin, and goatskin, skin, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, the onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded." Now, verse 11 and, and through 19, it goes on to talk about the tent, the furniture, the garments that would be made by these materials, which is also referenced back in chapters 25 to 30. But that right here, this is the command that God has for his people. Build what I've told you to build. Gather, gather stuff together. And make this tabernacle. And the reality is that for this tabernacle to be built, that they need a lot of raw material. They need a lot of laborers to do the work. And so chapter 38 actually gives us a quantified supply list. It tells us, it lists out how much weight of gold and silver and bronze was used. How much uh, much wood was used to build the tabernacle. And what it says, it gives a roster here. Over 600,000 people it took to build the tabernacle. A lot of resources, a lot of people. But the command for the contribution is based upon those who have a generous heart. God doesn't say everyone is required to bring 50 pounds of gold, right? Two drops of essential oils, a four by four piece of, uh, of, of material. God doesn't give out a prescriptive list of what every person needs to do. No, he says, those who are of a generous heart, those who have been stirred by my grace. So the command is whoever has a generous heart, or as chapter 25 says, whoever heart, whoever's heart moves them, would they contribute? This is a heartfelt obedience. And this heartfelt obedience is essential for God to dwell among his people. If, if people are not responding appropriately to grace and seeing the grace that God has poured out upon them and respond in this heartfelt obedience, God. Well, first of all, the tabernacle is probably not going to get built. And if the tabernacle is not built, then God doesn't move in next door. There's a sense that, that this heartfelt obedience is essential for God's mission to move forward. God doesn't want this white-knuckled obedience. He doesn't just want people to bear down and do it because he said so. God wants people to contribute out of a willingness of heart, to do it upon their own. He's not going to force anyone to do what they don't want. And I think that that right there is one of the big objections to Christianity, that Christianity is this this set of rules that God lays out that, that you have to follow, 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 and if you do it, then at the end, God will be happy with you. But this right here deflates that argument that God isn't interested in half-hearted worship. God isn't interested in white-knuckled obedience. What God is after is your heart. See, that white-knuckled obedience, that bear down and do it, just get it done, Jesus would have condemned that sort of obedience. In fact, he did when he looked at the Pharisees who were about doing doing the right things on the outside, but their hearts were detached from that. This is what he says to them. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. See, that sort of obedience, first of all, if we don't want to be obedient, it's, it's like its own torture, right? To do the things we don't want to do But when we love God, when our hearts are close to God, when we have seen the grace that he's poured forth, there's a willingness to step into obedience. There's a desire for us to obey because it makes us happy to delight in God. See, God doesn't want your obedience in the white-knuckle sense. He wants your heart, and with your heart comes joyful obedience to him. And I'm not saying that Christians are always like, yay, let's obey God, right? That that wouldn't be truthful to the inner struggle that we have in our hearts, that that there's certainly a part of us that wants to obey God, but there's always this piece of us that's lured into the dark side, right? Paul talks about this. I I, I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, or however he says that. There's this pull, this obedience. As Christians, we have this, this underlying desire to do what God says and what he wants from us, but there's this tendency that we get pulled in different directions. See, for Christians, I think when, when we're honest about where we're at in our life and what it looks like to obey God, for most of us, obedience is sort of a slow obedience. It takes a little bit of time for things to click, a little bit of time for us to understand what God is really wanting from us. Now, the majority of the Exodus story shows how Israel, to put it nicely, is slow to obedience. But here in chapters 35 through 39, for the first time maybe, or one of the, one of the few times in this Exodus story, we get a beautiful picture of what's going on among the, Exodus, the, the people in Israel, or the, of Israel. Chapter 35 through 39 shows us a zeal for obedience. Take a look at, at verses twenty. Twenty one. Then all of the congregation of the people of Israel departed. This is after they heard Moses say what, what needs to be done. They departed from the presence of Moses and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. See, Moses speaks what God wants. And everyone whose heart is stirred and spirit is moving them, they they jumped right to it. They got right to work. Some brought gold, some brought fabric, some brought wood, some, some brought oils and spices. See, everyone who wanted to contribute could contribute something, right? And every contribution mattered, everything counted. But these contributions were not just made in physical, tangible, you know, sort of material donations. The the contributions were made in the form of time and talent as well, right? In order to make the tabernacle, there had to be skillful and, and gifted people working on it. Everyone essentially had a part to play, that there were no spectators sitting out on the sideline who wanted to be part of the game. Women contributed by spinning fine linens and goat hair to make the tapestry. They made they they mixed the spices and the oils together. In verses uh, chapters thirty through thirty 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 through thirty-six we see that men with skill are filled with the Holy Spirit, that they're stirred to do the work of building. They followed the instructions as specifically laid out. They were very precise in their obedience. Now, what's impressive about this heart, heart motivated free will offering is not only the zeal to give and the excellence and precision of which they gave, but the amount that was contributed. So, back if you go to chapter thirty six, verses two, we'll see this. Take a look. And the Lord, or Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and. Every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all of the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each one from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work of the Lord. Has commanded us to do so. Moses gave a command. We'll get to that, but see the people. What they did here, they went above and beyond the contribution of what God actually required. They dug deep into their pockets, not because they were doing so out of out of compulsion or out of guilt, but out of out of love. Their hearts were filled with affections and love for God and what He was doing. And so these people. They dug deep in their pockets. Now, Exodus 32, when, when they're making this idol, this golden calf, what, they, what we're told is they take the rings that they were wearing, and we take, take the, the earrings, the jewelry that they had on themselves, to throw in the fire to make this golden calf. But here we see people emptying their family jewelry box. right? All of the gold that they have, they were willing to come and contribute to what God was doing in the tabernacle. See how much greater of an expression of love is this from the people of Israel, right? Before they, they just give these little trinkets away, Now they're digging deep, they're, they're giving God all that they have everything that's valuable. See, this is a zealous and generous giving which contributes to the excellent work. They've responded so tremendously to God's grace that they will just keep giving and giving. And giving so much so that for, for the first time, and probably the last time, a pastor has to tell his people to stop giving. Right? That's what happens in verse 7 here of chapter 36. He says, So Moses gave a command, and a word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the, of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more in my short tenure as pastor, I've had several difficult money conversations with people, but I've never had to have this conversation. Right? You're giving too much. You guys need to slow down there. And really, verse... Six and seven and eight, it's, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable for two, two reasons. One is that the people had to be told to stop giving, that they, were, they had to be restrained, right? This, this word of restraint means that, that they have a, an effort. If you have to restrain somebody who's having a seizure, right, they're moving, their body's trying to do something, right? The same sort of idea, that they want to do something involuntarily or are, 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 are trying to contribute, and they have to be restrained from doing so. See, this speaks so deeply to what these people, the grace that these people have experienced from God. And the reality is they weren't like this before. See, before, it's easy. If we look at the people of Israel, like, okay, they're just being generous. This is part of their nature. This is how they've always been. No, no, no. The people of Israel were not like that. They were not generous before they had experienced God's grace. And now they had experienced God's grace in incredible ways. And and through God's transforming power of, of what we could say the gospel, they had become generous people. See, this shows that they're starting to get it. They're starting to understand God's grace in a way that changes them. That they don't just say, oh yeah, God's really nice. It's something that's like, oh my goodness. Look at how gracious God has been to me. So that's the first thing that's remarkable about this. Secondly, what makes this, this incredible is that Moses doesn't see the giving and say, you know what, we got lots of stuff coming in. Why don't we just blow up the blueprints, right? Let's make it bigger. Let's build a bigger spectacle. God's a great God. He deserves a great big place for him to dwell. He doesn't do that. I think that this is a temptation that, that many modern pastors would have. Right, well, we see all this cash flow coming in. It means that we ought to spend it on making things bigger and better. But Moses doesn't deviate from God's plan. See, no matter how well intended Moses would have been in, in making things bigger, it still would have been disobedient to God. Right? Do you remember? Five chapters, God lays out specific detail of what the tabernacle is to be like. So there's this precision of obedience that Moses and the people of Israel have, that that they're not just winging obedience, they're doing it according to God's way and what he prescribes for them. And so as we go through chapters 36 and 37 and 38, we see that the people are building what God has told them to build, making um, the, the garments for the priests, and then we come to the end Of chapter 39, verses 42 and 43. It says, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. There's this there's this sort of finality to the work here of the people in building the tabernacle that it's accomplished. The work has been laid out for them. They've done it. It's according to God's ways. And Moses, he sees it and he stands back and goes, you guys, bless you. Now, I think this is a sweet moment in the story of Exodus. Moses has sort of been, I think the best way to put it would be like herding cats. Moses has been chasing the people around, trying to get them to sort of fall in line and to, 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 to focus on God and what he has for them. And it's just this, this toil for Moses. He, he feels this unbear, almost an un, really an unbearable burden as their pastor for them. He wants them to live in the light. But this is a sweet moment because Moses looks out at his people and he says, Bless you. You guys have been faithful, you have carried out God's plan, you have, you have been f- obedient to what God has laid out before you, and as a pastor, I know that I stand behind the pul- pulpit some days, and I come out hard and fast, chasing your idols, I'm trying to, to, to confront your sin and, and help you to move toward repentance, to see Jesus for who he is, and there, there are days where I have to do that. But one of the sweetest things as a pastor, the sweetest opportunities that I have is to look at you and say, bless you in your faithfulness. I'm praying that God would sort of cultivate a faithful people among us. That I could have far more of those bless you conversations than those hard conversations. And it's not just for the ease of my job. That's not what I'm after your joy and your delight in Jesus What a sweet moment for Moses to say, bless you. Now, in these chapters here, Israel gives us a template of what obedience to God looks like. See, the obedience God desires from his people is an obedience that comes from a heart that has been stirred by grace so that it would be zealous and generous to give back to God with excellence and precision. Right? You see all those things. There's, 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 an, there's a, a zeal for obedience. There's a generosity in obedience. There, there's an excellence and precision in the obedience of God's people. And that's what I, I think that Christian obedience looks like. For us to be a Christian people means to carry these traits of obedience. That First of all, that our, our obedience to God would come from the heart in response to the grace that he's given us in Christ. That we'd be zealous in the, same, in the sense that there's no delay for our good works, right? We don't dilly-dally. We get right to it, and we obey. That there would be a generosity in it, that we put our whole hearts into it. We don't do it half-heartedly. We do it as if we're doing it unto the Lord, which we are. That there would be an excellence and a precision, that, that, that it's sort of a gift that we get to give back to God. See, God has given us excellent gifts, right? As people who are recipients of that gift, we, we ought to give our best back to him. So there should be this excellence and precision in our obedience. And I think in that, there is blessing. In this kind of obedience, there is blessing for us. See, we don't obey to be blessed because before the obedience happens, there's all kinds of blessing that takes place. So it's sort of a blessing sandwich that, that there's blessing and obedience and more blessing. Now, as I was thinking, as a church plant, as a young church plant, in order to play our part in advancing the gospel in our cities, we must embody this kind of obedience. As individuals and a whole community, what we do and how we do it matters to God. See, God wants his people, right, the church, to be his dwelling place, the new and the better tabernacle. And so he wants us to live, to be, to, to, to act a certain way as if stirred from the heart. Now, this doesn't just apply to contributing financially to the mission of God, which it does, certainly, but this applies to a host of other areas in our life, right? How we relate to people who are different from us socially, politically, relationally. Are we zealous to love those people? Are we generous in our love toward them? Do we display that love with excellence and precision? What about how we obey God in raising our kids and creating a gospel culture in our home? Are we zealous to train and disciple our kids? Are we generously investing in them? Are we putting forth just as much work in our households as we do in our careers and vocations? Right? This, this applies to how we approach our work, our time management, how we use our resources and our talents. See, we need to be a people with a radical and a wholehearted zeal for obedience to God, especially in a society that's resistant to Him that we need to be people devoted to God's word who take ownership for learning what that obedience looks like, that we need to set out to honor and worship God in all things that we do with excellence and precision. And all of this is an expression of a heart that has been stirred by the grace upon grace that God has given us. See, in, in summary, right, what obedience to God looks like as a church means to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. See, that's, that's the great commission that Jesus left with his church. While Moses had a commission for his people to build a tabernacle, Jesus has a commission for his people to build the church. He says to do this, to make disciples, and to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And we're supposed to do this until he comes back. That is, that is the commission that we have as God's people See, but God, Jesus doesn't just show us what we should do, but how to do it as well, right? We make disciples in community and on mission, just how he did it with his disciples. And it's through the same power of the Holy Spirit which empowered the skilled workers in Exodus 35 onward that Christians are filled with the Spirit and called to be part of and contribute to a gospel community that is on mission, with our time, with our talent, with our treasure. See, obedience to God creates a gospel community on mission. Obedience to God in Exodus created a tabernacle. Obedience to God creates a gospel community on mission. And it's in this community on mission that you will learn joyful obedience. Grace produces it, and in that production, in that community, there's more grace for us to be had as we learn what it's like to obey God wholeheartedly. This is the agenda for grace, to make disciples who make disciples. Right? This produces obedience that leads others to Jesus. It's not to make a sweet venue or a sweet place to get together, but to create a community where hearts can be changed, Right, where heart obedience is developed and propelled by faith, which leads to more faith, which leads to blessing upon blessing, in light of the blessing upon blessing we've already received. See, the agenda for grace is to produce obedience, which brings about more grace. Now, if you isolate chapters 35 through 39, it seems like this is so focused on doing, right? Right? People are doing so much here. And it would be easy to turn this passage into a legalistic sort of, you guys need to just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do more, obey better, do more to make God happy. And while there is certainly a lot of doing and obeying in the Christian life, the reality is that obedience cannot save you. No matter how well you follow God's rules, at some point you will fail. Obeying better will not earn you a better standing with God, will not make you more deserving. See, even after the tabernacle was built, right, even after we see this sort of just a glimpse of, of momentary perfect obedience, sacrifices still had to be made. People sinned. See, the reason why sacrifices were still made is because this obedience is impossible to keep up for the long haul. Eventually, we will fail. Either we will do the wrong things, right? We'll sin in doing the things opposite to what God has for us, or we will sin in doing the right things the wrong way, which is equally displeasing to God. See, when we fail, have to remember that our identity isn't wrapped up in what we do, but what, in Christ, what Christ has accomplished for us. It takes us back to the Sabbath. It takes us back to the identity. That Jesus perfectly obeyed the, the Father on our behalf, that he was zealous, generous, and excellent, and precise in his obedience Always. And though Jesus was perfectly obedient and he deserved to have blessing upon blessing upon blessing from God, Jesus chose to be a curse. The curse that we all deserve to take on ourselves. It's by Jesus taking upon that curse that our sin is accounted for, that our disobedience, our half hearted obedience, is paid for and we get to enter into the blessing that Christ has earned on our behalf through his perfect obedience. See, it's when we see that grace that Jesus has laid out for us, that our standing, right standing with God doesn't depend on us, but on on his finished work, that moves us. That changes our heart, it changes our desires, it makes us want to be obedient people what it does, it makes us eager to repent. To acknowledge, I did mess up. I did not do this right. And know that on the other side of repentance, because of what Jesus has done, there is grace upon grace for us. See, as I close, I want to show you, I want to show you that the obedience of Israel in this moment ensured that God could be with them. That God could move in next door. See, that was the promise of the tabernacle. Build this tabernacle, make it right, then God will move in. But the gospel makes a different promise. God's nearness doesn't ride on our ability to obey, but on Christ's ability to obey perfectly. So much so that as Jesus gave us the great commission to make disciples, to, to be in community, and to be on mission, he knew that we would fail in doing so. He knew that we would do it imperfectly. But regardless, he tells us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age. That means that Jesus is with us now in our failings, in our successes. That is such a a much better promise than the tabernacle, that we do it right, and then God will come near us. Jesus says, I've already come near. I'm already here. That's good news for us. In light of our failures, Christ has come, and he is with us here now as his church is being built. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the only one who could obey perfectly, and he did so on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to you, that we would be able to enjoy the blessing and benefits of his perfect obedience in light of our failures. And you have, by your spirit, poured out grace upon grace, upon grace for us. I pray, Father, that in in light of that, you would transform our hearts, that you would make us eager, zealous to obey, that you'd make us generous in our obedience, that you would help us to be excellent and precise, listening to your spirit as you tell us what it looks like to obey, but also as we look to your word, would you help us to be people who love you from the heart, be like Christ in that way, that in all things he loved you and was obedient to you. And and because of that, we have so much to gain from him. And Father, I believe that you are creating people for yourself, building your church here that many others would be able to gain from that kind of love. Thank you for your mission that moves forward regardless of our sinfulness, Father God, and that you are building your church now and you are using us crooked sticks to make straight lines. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.